0: Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast, I'm your host Maurizio Caschetto and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends. My guest today is legendary horn player James Thatcher. James Thatcher is one of the most talented and distinguished French horn players of his generation and a true legend among Los Angeles studio musicians. He performed in thousands of film and television scores. He has been principal French horn for John Williams for more than 20 years, appearing also as featured soloist in film scores such as Always, JFK, Sleepers, Rosewood and The Patriot. has recorded more than 60 projects with John Williams, including many of his blockbuster scores recorded in Los Angeles, like Jurassic Park and Home Alone, but also Williams' music for the NBC News, the theme for the 1984 Olympic Games and the 20th anniversary live concert of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. In this conversation, Jim talks about his many collaborations with John Williams as principal horn and the many exquisite solos he performed in scores like Always, JFK and Jurassic Park. Today, I'm very, very happy to have here with me a very special guest for the Legacy of John Williams podcast. And I'm very glad to introduce Mr. James Thatcher. Hello, Jim, and thank you for being here with us.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Joining me into this conversation today is uh, one of of the Legacy of John Williams special friends, Tim Burden. Thank you, Tim, for being here with me.
2: Maurizio, it's a treat. It's it's great uh, to see you again. And great to see Jim again. It's it's been about I think seven seven years since we last met. I think. <laughs> wow, where's the time gone, Tim? Boy, sure fly by. <laughs> huh. I know, I know.
0: <laughs> I'm very happy to have here you, Tim, to to together with us because you know uh, many people probably don't know that you are the, the son of the distinguished British hornist John Burden, who had a very successful career as a classical musician. As principal horn of the London Symphony Orchestra back in the '50s, and but also one, as one of the most prolific uh, studio musicians in UK of his era, it's important for me to have also your perspective because you are such a uh, an expert of the of the history of the, of the of the instrument and also of the musicians that made this instrument so so great. So I'd like to start uh, with with Jim, uh, asking about your musical background information. I mean. How, how do you get into music, uh, I guess, since a young kid?
1: Well, I started, uh, you know, when I was very young, taking piano lessons. And then I, uh, I think I played the trumpet when I was uh, maybe 10 years old. And I just loved the way the French horn looked, so I took up the French horn. And I have an uncle, or had an uncle, who was a principal horn and conductor down in Mexico City and so when i became a teenager uh, i went down to mexico and studied horn with him his name was gerald thatcher and uh, studied with him and played in professional orchestras down in mexico and then uh, when i uh, got older i played with the uh, utah symphony the phoenix symphony uh, the los angeles philharmonic uh, many ballet orchestras, the Royal Ballet of Denmark, the Bolshoi Ballet, American Ballet Theatre, Music Center Opera, uh, on and on it went. uh, I did all of this actually before I even started playing in the studios. So uh, for about eight years I was a full time uh, symphonic hornist uh, and then got into the studios.
0: And that's a very interesting uh, path or journey because it's similar to what other Uh, colleagues of yours told me in in my previous talks uh, uh, your fellow LA studio musicians that a lot of of you guys started really as uh, studying and performing as classical players Uh, and you came to play uh, in studios as studio musicians almost by accident in a way or maybe through some connections that you had in the past so I want to ask you about what are the main differences um, between playing in a classical environment the standard symphony orchestra versus playing in a in a studio uh, musician kind of environment
1: well there are many similarities first of all Uh, as far as a french horn player you 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 play uh, as if you're in a symphonic orchestra the difference is you might be asked to play a solo uh 20 times in a motion picture call no fault of your own it's just that they may well we need to change the timing on this or oh the director wants the chord to go when the horse is on top of the bridge not after the horses pass the bridge stuff like that and so you find yourself playing solos uh over and over again and uh and so there's a mindset there you have to learn to be calm and uh and focus on playing fundamentally correctly and uh and so so you don't let this uh pressure of performing perfectly many, many times uh, get to you. In the symphony world, uh, it, the pressure is a little bit different because you know when you play a concert, you got one shot at it. And so, you know, you hope that you are prepared through the rehearsals and practice and, and, and then everything goes well in, this, in the live performance. So in a way, they're very similar. They both require that you have a, a good fundamental knowledge of how to produce on the instrument and then uh, with the, uh, like I said, with the studios, you have to learn to uh, keep calm and and, uh, and just bring things over many times uh, because of the different uh, demands that are, are in uh, the filmmaking itself, which often uh, come from the director and not even the composer.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's very, very interesting because I think it was Uh, Malcolm McNabb, with whom I talked a few weeks ago, uh, that he told me that sometimes the stress is so high that uh, it means that maybe you have a, a cue, you sit on a cue and maybe you then have nothing much in grades to play overall for two, three, four minutes, but that at the fifth minute comes a very difficult solo and you have to be so focused and precise and be spot on on that so how, how much pressure there is <laughs> when working in that kind of um, situation
1: yeah that's uh, that's one of the challenges of playing in the studios uh, is sometimes to stay in shape i've been on some calls where the horns had very little to do for six or eight hours and i'm literally sitting there feeling my lips go out of shape but knowing that maybe the next day I might have something like the Strauss Second Horns Concerto looking at me. <laughs> so, if, after, after sitting there all day, uh, if I'm lucky, I'll play in one of the orchestras that I still continue to play in, and we'll have a rehearsal that night. We might do Ein Heldenleben or something, then I, I have no problems. But if I don't have a rehearsal that night, and I've been sitting in the studio all day, I know that even though I'm tired, because I have been there all day, when I get home, I have to practice because I don't know what the next day is going to bring.
0: And that's and that's a very a very distinguished way of of, of you know keeping your uh, you know your musicianship at, at a very high level. Stepping back a, a little bit earlier in your career, I want to to ask you about your your experiences as a pupil of the great Vince De Rosa, the great hornist that you know is a legend on his own, of course, and and considered one of the greatest horn player uh, ever. You know, just, whoever lived. Yeah. Yes. So I want to ask you about your your studies with him and your friendship with him because I see that he was instrumental in bringing you into the studio environment am i right
1: yes absolutely vince de rosa was the reason uh i got into the studios we became close friends and i studied with him uh he also created a, such an atmosphere that the composers could rely on the horn being prominent and being accurate and not having to spend a lot of time or money having the horns redo things because vince always did it and because of that the composers wrote for the french horn uh quite a bit uh the same thing happened over in england with dennis brain you know he did all of the robin hood uh, television series with uh, richard green back in the 50s and 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 dennis was such an accurate player too that the horn was featured so vince did the same thing here in uh, in the los angeles area and i i listened to him from the time i was a, a, a young boy a teenager 13 years old i I heard uh, movies or like how the West was won, and and I just said, boy, that is amazing. So even though I had played professionally for about uh, oh, six years or eight years, uh, I still had to hear or and learn what it is that made him so special. When I was in the Phoenix Symphony, we had a Christmas party with the musicians, and we're all eating and clanking the clanking of dishes and joking around, and we'd put on. Oh, Philadelphia Orchestra, Christmas Music, or Boston Pops, this and that. And then somebody put on Henry Mancini, Vince DeRosa playing Silent Night. All of the talking stopped. There were no more clanking of dishes. Nobody was laughing or joking. His solo was so mesmerizing that that entire orchestra at that party just became deathly quiet to listen to this great artist. And when I heard that and I saw the reaction of the other musicians in that orchestra, I said to myself, I've got to get to know this man. So when I came back to Los Angeles and I'd already been playing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and other orchestras, um, I called him up and I said, I've got to study with you. Please, please let me, you know, and he said, well, sure, come on over. And that's how it started. And we started and he, 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 told me things about uh, how the lips or the embouchure work with the air column and how to play uh, uh, accurately and beautifully. And as I worked on these things, I suddenly realized that Vince DeRosa was telling me what I was doing when I was having a good day at the orchestra. So now I understood what it was to have a good day. (laughs) And so every day became a good day for me after studying with him. And, um, and he took my playing to another level and he took my career to another level also. I would sit next to him, maybe playing second horn while he's playing uh, first horn. And sometimes I would almost lose my place because I was listening so intently to how he did things so beautifully. He, he might have something, an octave above me and he made it sound as easy as the octave that I played. in. It, it was just remarkable to sit next to that man.
2: It's great to hear Mancini being mentioned there, actually, because one of my favorite solos of his, and I think Maurizio, I know you know this one too, is Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, yes. Beautiful. Okay, I mean, that pretty much starts the film. Incredible playing. And of course, Cocoon. Remember James Horner's Cocoon? Cocoon, that was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. I no, I want to thank I'll tell you why. Okay. Vince and I, we, we got very close. We were like father and son. And uh, we would sit in a car after a session and just talk. It was the happiest time of my career. The, the, the most glorious times of my career when I was not playing first horn, when I was sitting next to Vince DeRosa, Richard Parisi, and, horn, and great horn players from my father's generation, and they all loved me and I loved them. Of course, then I became a, a first horn player and everything changed. But Cocoon was my big opening with James Horner. He called me up. He said, uh, you know, I want somebody in my generation that I can spend uh, years with as my principal horn." And later on, Vince uh, talked to me. He said, everybody in town says that you sound like me. (laughs) And I looked at Vince and I said, you just gave me the greatest compliment I could ever ask for. So if you think think Cocoon was Vince DeRosa, you just gave me a great compliment.
2: And I thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to know. Because not all musicians would be that way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: oh, that was all, the, the Cocoon
2: was all
0: me. There are some fantastic, fantastic moments in Cocoon and full oh, of great lyrical yeah. horn writing, very high. Right.
1: Mr. Rosa to thank for that. All the horn solos I played through the years uh, I played because previously Vince had shown people uh, how accurately and beautifully the horn could play and so the French horn got into the psyche of the composers uh, to make it prominent as it was.
0: Right and I think that that it was probably very true for, for John Williams because uh, Vince was uh, his first chair horn for many years and performed on on Jaws and Close Encounters and many of the greats from the late 70s early 80s ET as well and so basically when did you step in into John's uh, orchestra what was your first score with him not not as first chair horn but in the section in general
1: well I played um, I remember the first time I played principal horn with John was when I was subbing For Vince. Vince had another job that he couldn't do and I came it was called the river with uh, Sissy Spacek and I did that and of course uh, James Horner was a great uh, supporter of mine because we were from the same generation and so the word spread through town how you know how the type of uh, playing I was doing with with Horner and so John got uh, interested in me and uh, and so he began to call me to play in the section with Vince as principal horn. Like I said, I was so happy to do that. In fact, one uh, movie, uh, the contractor called me and said, uh, uh, we have this next uh, Indiana Jones film called Indiana Jones and the last crusade. Um, we want Vince to play first, but we we would wonder if you wouldn't mind recommending the horn section.
3: Hmm.
1: And I thought, wow. So I recommended players that could play in the section with Vince. And, and we had a great time. So it just, it just kind of little by little uh, things, things progressed to where uh, John uh, used me more and more. Uh, the, the first big film where I was principal horn and had my own section was a film called Always. Right. And uh, there were a, a lot of nice solos in that. And, and John was still, uh, you know, he was testing me. So <laughs> he wrote this one cue. And it all, it was a big long horn solo, about a minute long. And, uh, but it was all in double sharps. And it it was in, it was in a range that you normally wouldn't see it on the horn. And I looked at that music and I went, this is strange. This must be a violin part. Well, just then, Jim Walker, the flutist, I think you've interviewed Jim.
0: Yes, I did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, Jim walked up to me, to my stand, and he said, Jim, I've got this solo I have to play with you, and I thought, oh my goodness, not only is it a ridiculously written solo, but I've got to do it with the flute, so so it's really got to be accurate, because I have to do it with someone else, and then John came up to me and said, now Jim, I've written you this big horn solo, but don't worry, if you can't play it, I've got it ready to go into the flute part, and of course, you know, being the the young know-it-all <laughs> egotist that I was, you know, you could have fried an egg on my shoulder by that time. So I made sure I put it in full of well. And, uh, and, and then John used me for, oh gosh, the next 25, 30 years, I guess, and uh, about 60 projects we were on. But it all started with always. And he, I think he purposely wrote it down a half step with double sharps and everything just to, to, to test me. <laughs>
2: Is so incredible, as you say, the range is incredible. But it literally because I remember because because Dan and I watched that film, um, you know, obviously way back at the time it would have been on on VHS, you know, some right. day And like you know, he 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 couldn't believe it. He thought, my goodness, you know. And he actually said, you know, James Thatcher is so lucky having these solos written for him because I mean, sadly, of course, you know, the, the solo is a bit kind of truncated in the film. It was edited a bit. But on the album, it's the full, um, and, and I think those you know the double sharps you're talking about those high notes are really uh, best experienced on the album. It, it's it's quite a it's quite a moment, isn't it? I mean, it, it really was,
1: and and I knew it was a big test. This was John was trying to determine if he wanted to have a long term relationship with me this way because Vince at this time was uh, you know getting into the the retirement part of his career, and so. And so John was uh, looking to move on with somebody uh, my age. He actually wrote two solos for always. And um, the other one was equally as difficult, but they only used part of it at the very end. They, They used like one measure out of the entire solo for that.
0: I think it's on the soundtrack album of Always that was the credit uh, French horn solos Jim Thatcher.
1: Well I know he credited me for uh, Amistad and I also got credit for a film called Sleepers and that featured French horn and electric bass which shows what a uh, what a versatile composer John Williams was. John Williams can write any style he wants. We did a film called Rosewood which, uh, which he a steel string guitar, and Dean Parks uh, played all the the steel guitar works, and it's just marvelous. And John wrote a uh, a African American spiritual, and uh, that was quite beautiful. And then he wrote a, a wonderful horn solo, on, based on that tune. And he actually took the music and and wrote at the top, "Dear Jim, in appreciation for your great art." And
2: so I have that hanging up on my wall.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, fantastic. We should get a picture <laughs> yeah. of that. That's, lovely, that's lovely. Yeah, well, we could do that. Look Down Lord, wasn't it? Look Down Lord. Yes, that's right.
1: Another film, um, JFK.
0: Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: uh, it started out with uh, an acapella horn solo for you know about a minute, and then the strings would come in. But uh, that music was written before the film had been edited. So when the film actually came out, they took that one solo that I played and cut it up and put it in different parts in the movie. So it sounds like I had a lot of solos, but actually I just had the one.
0: Yeah, I think it was. It's one of the very uh, few exceptions in John Williams's career when he wrote music uh, before, uh, you know, seeing any footage or you know before the completed film. At, at least the bulk of the score. Then, uh, from what I know, he then returned later on when, when the film was completed and fully edited, then he contributed <clears> some <throat> more music, uh, more as a more traditional uh, accompaniment. Right.
1: Yes. Right. And and. Uh... But the, the solo that he wrote, is uh, it's out there in the, in the literature. You'll, you'll find uh, different orchestras, Boston Pops and others. These, these players have the opportunity to play that. Uh, what was interesting is that he called me in an hour earlier than the session was normally supposed to start. So it was just myself on the horn and the strings. And so as I was playing through this a cappella solo, each one of my colleagues who were who, who were supposed to show up later, walked in and their eyes were as big as saucers. <laughs> they all they, they just their eyes were really big and they just sat down and just said, I think they were probably thinking, boy, I hope I don't have to play this.
0: <laughs> no, very but because <laughs> there, there is there are some very high notes in that solo, too. I mean, when yeah. the horn goes bah, 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 it peaks up very, very high it's amazing.
1: Now, an interesting story about this, Uh, John has two brothers who worked in the studios, Jerry and Don. They're both percussionists. And John's father, John Sr., was also a studio percussionist. You might know this. So I was close friends uh, with with both Don and with Jerry. And Jerry talked to me, and he said, you're not going to guess what happened. I said, what? He says, I called up John. Because he's when he was writing this horn solo for you for JFK, I called up John and I said, "Hey, what are you doing tonight?" And John said, "Oh, I'm just putting the last nail in Jim Thatcher's coffin."
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely.
1: <laughs> but, you know, John, as as great a uh, composer musician, he had this this, this dry humor that uh, you know, and he was a very he is a very sweet man, but he does not suffer fools. So he, uh, you know, you you knew you had to be on top, in shape and honest with him at all times.
0: That's that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, I think other musicians uh, told me about how uh, how very serious he always is during the recording sessions uh, throughout. And he keeps also this uh, very uh, kind atmosphere between musicians, but always at the top of the control of everything and I wanted to ask you what what were your first impression working with him and also throughout the years how do you see him if you if any if you see him him change somehow in his approach to music making and his approach with the, with the orchestra with the musicians and so on.
1: I, I didn't really see any change. He, uh, from the very first moment I worked with him he was great. When we did the Olympic theme in 1984, it was just stunning how, what a great composition it was. And then we came back in 1992 and re-recorded it with a lot of different uh, variations to it for, for the future programming. Just, uh, John just never ceased to uh, amaze us. You, just when you thought, you know, boy, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard, he'd write something else and you go, oh my gosh, he just topped that. How does this man do this? You know, so but in, like I said, if you were really on top of things and treated it seriously, he was the best of friends. We did a film called Hooked, which I oh, think yeah. is one of his finest scores. Yeah, the music was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know, at the end, he had this long Dauphinus and Cloy type of flute solo that Luis de Tullio played on so beautifully. But anyway, halfway through the uh, sessions, we're on a break, and john I'm walking by John. He's still up on the podium. And I looked at John, and I said, I'm having a great time today. And John looked down at me and said, so am I.
0: Yeah, it's, it's such a such a rich score. I, I was talking with actually with Tim and just a few days ago. We were talking about this score specifically, uh, how great it is. Uh, even though the movie probably wasn't uh, on the same level of the of the artistry of the music, but you know the music is is living his own life nowadays. But uh, I wanted to ask you about that score because I know from talking with other musicians that it was also very tough <laughs> on all of you because you had a lot to play, lots of, especially the brass section and the winds overall had incredible, tough parts. And, you know, how, how is the feeling when you open up the book and you find that kind of, you know, level that you have to bring?
1: You just you just know that when you work for John Williams, you better be in top shape, you better bring your A game and be prepared for whatever uh he has to do and if you're prepared then then it works because not only did he write difficultly but he wrote idiomatically too so things things work there's one solo in hook where robin williams is getting sniffed out by some flowers and stuff and there's, there's this horn solo very very athletic but it's also with the flute if you listen carefully it's a duet but i had 30 seconds to work on that I, you know, I opened the page and I thought, oh, wow, look at this. And, and so we hadn't started yet. So for 30 seconds, I'm just cramming like crazy. And then, boom, we started making takes. So you just, you didn't have time to, you know, you, you knew you had to be prepared fundamentally to play anything that he threw in front of you. I have a picture in my studio, it's a drawing of an orchestra uh, and everyone's slumped over and there's smoke coming out of all of our bodies and John, and John Williams, they got the back of John Williams head and, and, and the caption he goes, okay, tootie, I mean, let's do it again. Guess who, guess who drew that drawing? Who? Steven Spielberg.
0: Ah, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, That's
1: so I amazing. have it in the studio. I have Very a picture
0: cool. of
1: the, the slumped over orchestra doing hook, John Williams ready to go again. And at the bottom it says Steven Spielberg.
0: It speaks volumes, <laughs> I think. It's a nice memory, but also speaks volumes about uh, you know, about the, the, the quantity of music you had to record for that movie.
2: Right, because The Ultimate War, you know, those horn rips throughout that cue, I mean, because the whole queue, I think all together, is about twelve minutes non-stop. I think it's seven minutes or eight minutes on the CD, but it, I mean it's relentless. And there's some fantastic, um, you know, driving uh, scales up whenever the the, you know, the Lost Boys are kind of doing this, shooting colourful things. That it, it's it's so much fun.
1: It's amazing, if you listen carefully to that segment, listen to the woodwinds. The woodwind parts are unbelievably difficult, and and they just threw it off. I mean, these musicians are, that I worked with were just fantastic.
0: Mm. Yeah, he had a great flute section. Uh, Luis Di Tullio, Jim Walker, Jerry Rotella, his favorite players, basically, on, on, on the flute section.
2: Remember the, the richness of the big finale, whenever you have all the cellos and the horns together, for the big finish. I mean, that is such a beautiful sound. And you, you can't really think of any, very few movies would end that way. And that's where I think makes him, and obviously all of your playing so unique. I mean, that that richness, it's almost like a chorus. I mean, it's so perfect.
1: John Williams is very uh, multifaceted. And he, you know, a lesser composer would probably write a bunch of fanfares and add more brass and this and that. but. But John Williams could do things harmonically that would be exciting. And I'm specifically thinking of a film we did called Far and Away with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And there's a section there where Cruise is trying to gain control of the horse during the Oklahoma land grab and he finally does and then the horse takes off and he, go, and he goes to the front of the whole group. John modulated when the, when the horse took over and took the themes and everything in a different key Rather than getting bigger, he changed keys and it worked. Un- it worked beautifully. Just, it just showed it was pure genius, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, that's another movie where I know that it a, is a favorite of many musicians because there is some fantastic parts for virtually really every, every every section every instrument and and it has also this very uh, authentic but also uh, lively Irish uh, spirit in it because of of course the setting of the film but also because right. he, he brought the chieftains yeah. into the he brought it into, yeah
1: Patty Mahoney and the chieftains were right in the middle of our orchestra and that was that was fun Those those were very fun loving guys and John would do that sometimes when we did uh, Schindler's List he brought in a Klezmer Orchestra with that very you know that very sultry dark sounding clarinet you know and and uh, and they they sat in the middle of the orchestra at times also John was great with uh, collaborating uh, with us and other musicians throughout the world. We did a film called Seven Years in Tibet, and he featured Yo-Yo Ma on, on, the, on the cello. And uh, Yo-Yo, he wrote this you know, ridiculous, out-of-the-range, long, obligato-type cello part, and Yo-Yo absolutely nailed it. His pitch, everything, was just remarkable. And I went up to him. To Yo-Yo, and I said, your pitch is just amazing, and he was so nice, he goes, hey, thanks man, I really, you know, he, he just, he treated me like a colleague, and not like, you know, he's Yo-Yo mon and this is some studio horn player, and, <laughs> and, and that's, the, that's the other great thing about working with John, and with musicians around the world, is we all have this kind of a family uh feeling towards each other it was really great
0: yeah and the thing that you uh, specifically said about the uh, he writing idiomatically for the instrument i mean one, one one thing i noticed is not just that he's very uh, knowledgeable about writing amazing uh, solo parts but also how to treat the horn as a section and i'm thinking about uh, specifically the color in the harmony that he uses sometimes when especially when he uses two or three horns playing slightly different parts in, in, in close spaced harmony, but it gives you this great flavor. I don't know how to, to put it in a... No, in
1: uh, you, you put it quite well actually, you know, it's a... In, like I said, the, 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 as far as I'm concerned, the man showed no weakness. Sometimes people would say, oh, this sounds like John Williams. Yeah. And I just say to myself, no, you don't know. John Williams can sound like anybody or anything and he can sound like John Williams. You know, he's uh, 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 just a a remarkable musician.
0: Also about the fact that he gives interesting parts to play for, for the musicians you know especially in the horn i'm thinking about uh you know that the flying theme from et of course it's this big beautiful uh, strings section that carries the theme and you have the horns underneath playing that pop, pop 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 rhythmic figures but it's very i guess interesting to play it's not just it, a accompaniment it
1: worked yeah now the man who did all the work on et was vince de rosa that's that's uh some of Vince's solos at their very best. Uh, About 20 years after E.T. came out, that was 1984, and in 2004, we actually did a concert of E.T. to a live audience, like an opera, and John came out and conducted us, and so I'm I'm just really kind of nervous. I go, oh my gosh, I have to do E.T. live, and I'm gonna be comparing myself with my great teacher but it went really well it went so well we were so on top of things that they actually made another cd out of that in the 20th anniversary so you can listen to et done with a studio orchestra in 84 or you can listen to et done with a live orchestra in 2004 <laughs>
3: At the bottom of the hill, this is Unit 302. We've cut the kids off.
2: One of the special aspects of that concert, yes, it's a wonderful kind of full circle thing because, you know, obviously the the DVD and the Blu-ray shows shows you clearly uh, in the orchestra there, and uh, you know, obviously playing so beautifully. But um, I love how you know the end, and Spielberg, you know, has this kind of um, affectionate joke with the orchestra and with the audience that we're going to do some live end credits. You know, (laughs) so you guys, you guys are literally playing. Whenever all the guys come on stage, it was a lovely touch. Lovely touch. I must have been a thrill. It, it was a it was a great evening. Yeah,
1: I really enjoyed it.
0: And uh, speaking about uh, um, the French horn as a as a character in John's music, he frequently used the French horn as the you know as the to 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 depict the the, the, the hero or the heroine. You know, if you think about Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, of course, that was of course uh, done by the the LSO. But uh, how would you describe John's approach to writing for the instrument? You know, have you had you have you had any experiences with talking with him about, you know, how he approached intonation or phrasing or things like that? Because I know that you also performed with him his horn concerto once, right?
1: Right. We did that. uh, We we did a West Coast premiere of his horn concerto. Um, Yeah. The thing about John is uh, you you better make sure your pitch is good. Obviously you need to be accurate, but pitch needs to be there. Uh, The rhythm needs to be good also, but style, uh, there was a little give and take there. For example, the horn solo in JFK, I sat down and played it in a way that was kind of militaristic, and after I got done playing it, John came up and said, you know, Jim, I'm, I'm hearing this solo a little more lyrically played than than militaristically but I liked what you did militaristically so could you combine those two what what how you felt about it and and how I'm feeling about it and that is the absolute pinnacle I think of music making is the art of collaboration between performer and composer something I think is sorely lacking in uh, in many uh, compositions nowadays where you work really hard on a very hard piece, but it just doesn't mean much in a lot of modern music. Uh, and the great composers like Brahms, you know, he, he uh, collaborated with the famous violinist Joaquin to to you know teach him how to how to write for the uh, for the violin. And and John has that same uh, mentality of uh, of uh, uh, you know demanding things, but at the same time having a collaborative spirit with him. And I think that's another thing that made it so rewarding to work with
0: John. Mm-hmm. And I think also he likes to, you know, to give leeway to the to the performers in the sense that I think it was Dan Higgins, the fabulous uh, saxophone player who did the solos on Catch Me If You Can, that said that once John talking with, I think it was, they were recording probably the source music for Schindler's List. And he told Dan to perform, you know, He told him, Don, can you sound a little bit more antique, you know, and he just saying that word, it's something that he gives to you. And of course, you can do whatever you want with that word, but it probably opens you a a, a landscape of, of, you know, also of imagination, I think, in a way. You
1: see, in that way, John was telling the performer, in this case, Dan, how he respected him you know he could say play it more antique or or to me he said play it i i want it uh, more lyrically done than militaristically and and john is really telling you that uh he had confidence that you could pull that off and do that and that was so great i was sitting behind dan higgins when we did the main title to catch me if you can dan higgins sight read you know that, that big jazz solo there. It's not yeah. just uh, for for, uh, for uh, alto sax; it was also for vibraphone. And Alan Estes, great percussionist, was sitting in the back playing the same notes that John had written for Dan Higgins. But Higgins, being the kind of the jazz musician that he is, oh, consummate musician, Dan can do anything, but he never uncrossed his legs when he sight read it, and he never uncrossed his legs when they recorded it. And it was it was one of the few times where I saw John Williams kind of get out of character a little bit, as, as Dan was just knocking this solo off, as if he'd worked on it for a year. John's mouth began to open, you know, in amazement, as Dan was playing it. It was, just, it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's such a lovely score. Yes, it's a full of... You know that there are some incredible moments. Also, you know some that that big uh, end credit piece where he goes with this beautiful uh, odd meter piece that it's very very fantastic with mean, a full uh, brass yeah. section.
2: it's that kind of um, that, that rhythmic that jazz rhythm which is kind of inherent in his blood. Is I love how it comes. You know, it comes across often during those cues. Right. Uh, you know, it really nailed the sound. It's worth noting uh, when, it, when we're talking about sound, the, the quality of the Sony scoring stage, isn't it? Because I, I think sometimes, you know, whenever you hear certain stages and recording studios, the, the, the resonance I think lends itself well to, to your playing. Would you agree with that? Oh yes, the the
1: the room makes a big big difference in how we play. And and Sony, which we used to call MGM, uh, was uh, one of our favorite stages to play on. 20th Century Fox was very good also, and I understand that uh, years ago there was a studio that was even better on, uh, called Goldwyn Studio. It was on 3rd Street in Hollywood, and they closed it down, turned it into something else, but my colleagues from uh, uh, my father's generation used to speak very, very warmly about the Goldwyn Studio being such a great place. And you can hear uh, the quality of that in a movie called The Best Years of Our Lives, written mm. by Hugo Friedhofer, I think it was 1946. And it was done in Goldwyn Studio.
0: Just fantastic music, beautiful, beautiful yeah, music. Oh, I'm,
1: I'm, a, I'm a huge Friedhofer fan. I just think he's amazing.
0: Yeah, mm. uh, super uber underrated, of course, and not just as well. well uh, H-
1: yeah, Hugo was usually, he was, he was writing for a lot of other people. He was arranging, ghosting. But when he had a shot, you know, you listen to uh, the best years of our lives and he really brings it. And then you see what this man's capable. Of course, another great uh, score was uh, An Affair to Remember with Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. At oh, the yeah. end of the movie, when when Cary Grant discovers the painting in the other room and realizes that finally that Deborah Carr was in a car accident and was uh, handicapped. That's why she didn't see him, you know. And... What Friedhofer did to that music, to that scene, really, to me, synthesized why uh, and how music can make a film or lift it. And, and, and John, of course, carried this, this great tradition. John Williams, Andre Previn, all of it. You know, John, John grew up in this atmosphere of these great musicians. He also had great jazz knowledge because he and uh, Henry Mancini worked uh, work together, also, and like I said, John can, John can do anything. I think.
0: Mm. I think that the fact that he was a studio musician, because he was playing piano for for Alfred Newman and Dimitri jomkin and Bernard Herrmann, Aaron Mancini, it, it was very important for him when he became a fully fledged composer that you know he had that mentality, the mentality of the studio musician. So he knows what to ask to you guys, the musicians because he, he comes from the band, in a way. right?
1: Yes, that's true.
0: And speaking of his musicianship, uh, talking about the horn concerto, uh, you have you made the, the West Coast premiere, as you said before. And so how difficult and challenging it is compared to his movie music, because it sounds like John Williams, but it's a different side of him. It's very much more right. It's, it's
1: a side of John where he, he takes things uh and, and delves into the more uh intricately i guess you could say uh it, it's very it's a very athletic piece i worked very very hard on that piece to to get it part of me wishes that john would just write some concert works just like he writes for the film scores you know and, and that's not meant to put down his concert works it's just that that you know like um eric Korngold, his violin concerto, uh, uses the theme from the main title of the movie, The Prince and the Pauper. Yes. But I'm pump, pump, but I'm you know, And, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so uh, Korngold just, he, you know, he made no bones about it. This is how I write for film. And this is how I'm going to write for concerts. And John <laughs> said, this is how I write for film, but listen to what I can do for concerts too. You know, and it's just, I think a lot of his music is still beyond what people are, are prepared to comprehend. Mm-hmm.
0: But, but do you think he purposefully uh, changed style? Uh-
1: uh, it's, it's, it's more complicated at times. And uh, part of me wishes he would have just stepped back and said, I'm John Williams this is what I've written, listen to this, you know, and and done that. But, but, you know, that's, you know, that's John's choice to do what he did there. I mean, like I said, the man's absolutely brilliant and he can, he he can do things far above what people realize. I heard a a fairly famous composer who I will not name. Uh, uh, I read it online and he said, Oh, if I, if I wanted to write like John Williams, I could, but I don't want to. And I thought to myself, this man is an idiot. He doesn't know. uh, John Williams has probably forgotten more about composing than this guy will ever write. And like I said, I'm not going to tell you who the guy was. But it it just, it shows at times how underrated John becomes. When he did Star Wars, uh, they sort of made fun of it. Oh, here's Elgar. Oh, here's Holes. You know, I'd hear this because I was working in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. But what they don't realize is that Lucas wanted the planets. He wanted Pops and Circumstance. He wanted this of I could be wrong, but my opinion is that he was looking for kind of a Stanley Kubrick approach right. to music like he did with 2001 where he right. took that wonderful tour of Alex North and threw it out. But from what I've heard, John said to um, Lucas, he said, look, I can write those styles. You want Holst, you want uh, Elgar, you know, I can do that. But your characters here all need themes, each one of them like an opera, they need their own motifs, and so that's what John did, he wrote in those styles when they wanted that, but he gave them their own themes also, and people don't realize that once again, here's this fantastic musician who could write in any style, add themes, and, and, and single-handedly, I think, made a franchise out of all the Star Wars movies.
0: I totally agree with mm. that and and of course he he showed his versatility the same year writing close encounters of the third kind which is absolutely oh <laughs> completely different from star wars and a league on its own i mean
1: mm. in close encounters it was very interesting that at the very end he took the theme when you wish upon a star which was written by a great composer a man named lee harleen who was one of many great composers that no one knows about because they were just so busy writing for television and B-movies and things like that. But my colleagues uh, my father's age, horn players, they used to say, oh, this Lee Harleen, man, he's a great writer. And so Lee Harleen wrote When You Wish Upon a Star. And John took that theme, When You Wish Upon a Star, and very skillfully incorporated it into his score at the end of Close Encounters. Once again, showing the collaborative and somewhat humble mentality that John would show
2: musically.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Very true.
2: You know, there's an iconic album, which um, Zubin Mehta did with the Los Angeles Phil uh, in 77 or 78. Did did you play on that, um, Jim? Yes, I was in the section on that.
1: My my very dear friend, Bill Lane, William Lane played the the horn solos on that. He was principal horn of the Los Angeles Philharmonic at that time. And Bill and I are still close friends. Uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that was Bill Lane doing the horn solos. And I, and I was fortunate to be uh, playing in the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the time and played uh, in the section there.
0: That's very interesting mm-hmm. because a few of the key future, key players, also Jim Walker taught me he was... principal flute on that recording
1: right speaking of jim walker let's just let me say tell you for a second uh jim walker and i were very close he's older than i am and so he was like uh, an older brother to me almost a mentor and there was a time when the los angeles Philharmonic was uh going to hold an audition for principal horn and i was toying with the idea of auditioning for that job but at this point, I was playing principal horn with the Pacific Symphony, Pasadena Symphony, operas, and a lot of stuff. And I was doing lots of recording work. So Jim, Jim and I were over at Universal Studios having lunch, and he looked at me intently, and he said, Jim, all orchestras are the same. You've got a great thing going here. Don't leave it. And so because of Jim Walker, I have him to thank for staying in the studios and then going on to do all the solo stuff. Because he was the one who convinced me not to go back into full-time orchestra playing. But he said, you've got a great balance here between uh, classical work and recording work. Don't mess with it. That was Jimmy Walker. Wow,
0: That's a lovely story.
1: So, yeah. Wise word. Yes. I, love,
0: I love Jim Walker.
1: I, I owe him a lot.
0: Uh, he, he's such a lovely man. I had a beautiful conversation with him. And he was really really full of stories as well about a couple of things i want to ask you one is uh, about jurassic park because of, yes. <laughs> that is another one very tough for you guys i guess
1: well you know the the horn solo the that acapella horn solo in there he made me play that at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> we play and, and this is Ouch. you know this, this is kind of typical john john had this had the, this little dry uh testing humor whatever you want to call it you know he uh and and anyway we'd yeah we played all the cues during the day and i'm just dead tired and he said oh jim i have one more thing for you to do unfortunately <laughs> it went well but i was like oh my gosh john i'm on my teeth here <laughs>
0: at the movie, the role of the music is, of course, on the same level of Jaws or other classics. I mean, in the sense that the right. music carries so much of the weight of, of, of the drama and the excitement. You know, if you live, you put the music out, the movie feels dead in a way, even though it's spectacular with great uh, effects and so on. But it, it lacks the soul. And specifically, I want to ask you about the, the cue uh, when the helicopter arrived. On the island. And that, that is uh, very brass heavy, of course, especially for the trumpets. But I mean, I guess for the, when you play for the first time such a cue, what are the feelings? What, what, what do you, what, what do you, musician, are looking for? Do, does John talk to you about the scene or just, you know, just tells you? you know, no,
1: he'll talk about it if, if it's needed. John never did anything superfluous you know john john always he got right to you know what needed to be done if he wanted my horn solo to sound different on jfk he told me and this is what he wanted but uh when we were doing that scene in jurassic park all i was thinking of was how strong and great those trumpets with malcolm McNabb were playing that and we had to do the same uh theme later on with the french horns and 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 i just said boy i hope we play it as strong as strongly as Malcolm did, and I hope we do it as accurately as the trumpets. So that was more of just a self-preservation. Boy, I hope we get this thing as good as those guys did.
0: And of course, in the movie, that scene, the music is so prominent. I mean, you cannot listen to everything else but the music
2: because it's it's so right. It's it's so it's so well mixed at at that time. I was a cinema manager and we used to get complaints from customers because it was one of these first DTS films. We used to get complaints because they couldn't hear what the dialogue was and everything. But of course, the music was fantastically pronounced and at, at the end of that journey to the island queue there's this great kind of it's whenever the jeeps are going to the actual you know museum center and it, it sounds like i think it's six six horns together with strings you know uh, the, the, the
0: kind it, of military the march uh,
2: yeah
1: There was that. There's another theme when um, Sam Neill first sees the uh, Brontosaurus or whatever it was, and he realizes that uh, uh, you know they uh, they move in herds or whatever. He said, and it was very emotional. And John wrote a very beautiful uh, horn solo to not not to depict the dinosaurs so much as to depict the feeling that uh, the actor Sam Neill had. Uh, at, at that point, and and this is something else I want to say very briefly. I think that the greatest music John Williams ever wrote, no one ever hears. And what I mean by that is, there's episodic stuff that he writes that he it, it is so skillful the way he pulls the audience into the scene and completes that scene, and they don't even realize what it was they don't realize it was john's music that did that i'm thinking specifically of a movie called sleepers at the end of the movie when everyone did they all get together in in a uh, they you know they won the court case and now they're all together in in a restaurant and john wrote just some magnificent music for that little restaurant team and just you know and culminated the film as it were too Like I said, a lot of times people don't even realize all the great music John wrote, because he so skillfully, psychologically pulled people into the film.
0: Yes. And that that movie, Sleepers, I know that is one of Tim's favorite scores by John, mainly because of your Playing, Jim. You know your beautiful solos mm. you had. Oh, together, thank you,
1: thank you very much.
0: Together with a great uh, LA Phil flutist, uh, Janet Ferguson, you had.
1: Yeah, Janet things. Ferguson played on that, and uh, Neil Steubenhaus played the uh, electric bass. And that's interesting. He he featured electric bass with French horn, and it fit. It fit the film, you know, John. Like I said, this is a man with absolute knowledge of of styles and feelings and 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 how to get things done. John was, you know, is, I shouldn't say was, is uh, uh, a master.
2: Uh, with, with John's writing, it's like kind of the, the the heart of of the movie. You know, you're playing the heart of Hell's Kitchen, and and that scene you just mentioned there, uh, incredible hot note you have, uh, sorry, high note you have. You know, what a cue.
1: Yeah, there's one scene there where Robert De Niro is walking out of the church, uh, agonizing what he was going to do with uh, when when he was called to. Uh, testify in court, and and John wrote a beautiful, beautiful horn solo depicting uh, the pathos and and the the conflict that was in uh, De Niro.
0: That score for me is kind of uh, John's version of "On the Waterfront" by Leonard Bernstein.
1: Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting uh, a correlation there. Yeah,
0: because I think not not because it sounds similar, but it has that same anguished, uh, very American also uh, personality mm. that Bernstein was able to put from from the great movie with Brando. Uh, of course that we all remember but I think John in that movie was kind of doing something similar. You know, playing the drama but at the same time doing a commentary and not just accompaniment if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, with John's music and especially with Neil uh, uh electric bass player you felt like you were in Hell's Kitchen.
0: And speaking about your experience with the great old-fashioned composers like uh, um, John Williams, of course, but also you played with James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith, James Newton Howard. You know, how, how is different that era from today? I mean, how the style of playing and performance have changed in film music, in film scores throughout the years? You know, I know that nowadays is virtually everything recording separate sections, separate stems, instead of having the band together. So how, how do you see the, the, the changes throughout the years?
1: Well, since you brought this up, uh, I guess we have to deal with it. I feel like we are in a dark age because the art of collaboration is not there right now. Most horn parts are in sections, section this section that. And there's, there's very little uh, uh, collaboration between soloists and and, uh, and participating individualistically in the film, and uh, I, you know I just it's uh, it's been very I, I'm glad. Let me put it this way: I'm glad I'm at this point of my career, and that I lived through the tail end of a golden era of fantastic composers, fantastic players. There's a oboe player. His name was Gordon Pope, and he had the most beautiful fragile sound on that oboe and I'm talking about films from the 1950s and every time every time I hear that sound I go that's got to be Gordon Pope and there are many musicians like that you know and we all feel like we were in a way actors in the film it's just that we were supplying the the musical psychology to the film. And I, I, I don't feel that anymore. Uh, there are exceptions every now and then. But uh, in fact, I'm working with a wonderful composer. His name is Walter Murphy. And he writes in the old style. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, very high, high quality stuff. This, uh, you know, American dad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. but, but Walter is another genius of, of that era. He's about my age. And, and so uh, it's so refreshing to go into a studio and, and we, we have a great time. We laugh, we joke, and then we sit down and we play. And Walter's very demanding, but at the same time, he's very approachable. And that to me, uh, I miss that. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's what I had with John Williams, with Jerry Goldsmith, Newton Howard. You, you just named mm-hmm. some of not only people I worked with, but some of my dearest friends. Last night, my wife and I were watching a film called Forever Young with Jerry Goldsmith.
0: Beautiful music.
1: Air Force One, Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith, he can make you cry. He mm. writes that way. And, Jerry, and Jer- there's another one, like John. He came from this era where, where these, these men were so good in their craft that they could write all kinds of styles. Jerry wrote all kinds of styles. We did a film called Sleeping with the Enemy and he used the theme which sounded very close to the second movement of the Rachmaninoff's uh second symphony you know and we all went Rachmaninoff and Jerry said all right guys shut up but but Jerry was good about I mean Jerry there was another wonderful wonderful man he was like a father to me also John, I, I'm, I was so blessed to work with incredible composers who are also incredible human beings.
0: That's uh, yeah. something that that keeps going throughout all these conversations I'm having with you, with you musicians. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is not just to, of course, to celebrate uh, John Williams and his incredible artistry, but also to put the spotlight about what his music means to you, musicians, and how much he was uh instrumental excuse me the play on words but instrumental in in giving you to many of you uh, great opportunities or great moments to to shine and of course being part of movie history because he knows very well how much uh, important is uh, a great playing in a scene as you were saying before you know he he reads the psychology of the character he reads the 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 sense of the drama but he knows how much that beautiful playing contributes to the emotions of us audience and we were doing
1: it we were doing a film called lions to lambs with robert redford and at the end of the film redford just sat around with us in the sound booth and he just thanked all of us he says i want to thank you for your part in in this film we are in a collaborative art that was his word and so, and that's what made Robert Redford or makes him such a great filmmaker. Is he understands also that we are all collaborating in in bringing this great uh, uh, bit of artistic um, information to the world.
0: Yeah, and of course, also uh, it's important to to acknowledge the fact that a lot of the playing you 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 do usually is especially for, for someone like John Williams, it's very, you know, top level. It's the same level of you finding in the greatest orchestra around the world. I mean, I was listening to another score recently. Uh, it's not one of the most famous from John, but I think it's beautiful and it's called The Patriot, uh, the Mel Gibson movie. And there are some mm. incredible parts.
1: I was very privileged to play on that also. and. And in fact, I was done in 2000. And, and at that point, I thought I was at the peak of my um, abilities. And so I'm very proud of that movie. I listened to the horn solos on and I go, yeah, that's, that, that's what I was trying to do. And John gave me a chance to do it.
0: lots of horn solos, right? and, and not a, many, many of them are not on the album, sadly. <laughs> no. Yeah,
1: that's the sad part about soundtracks, you can't get everything, the opening of the Patriot where, uh, you know, they pan into the farm and there's a horse running, the, 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 there was, uh, I don't think there was a horn parts in it, but the string riding was just so amazing. The, the way that John weaved, the, it, was, it was sort of like Copeland, but not really. It was, a, 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 to me, another level even. And, and I went in to listen to it in the, uh, uh, during a break, and I looked at John and I said to him, I said, how do you hear this? How do you hear this? And he just smiled, you know? <laughs> but, but that, you know, it's, it's just so special to hear what, what he could do.
2: It's, I'm glad. It's really worth mentioning that opening credits to the Patriot um, or the Patriot, because uh, the, the directors—I uh, don't know—I think maybe it was purposeful. But whenever the uh, whenever John Williams' the screen credit comes on, you know the, the theme kicks in. It's it's very nicely done, and, and that and that track title, Jim, um, where you know, the solos are, are just phenomenal, is uh, Anne Gabriel. Um, That's that's the track. uh, That's the track. I mean, obviously, as Mauricio says, there's lots of solos throughout the theme. But yeah, Anne and Gabriel, there's. I think it's about a constant minute or two minutes of just phenomenal horn solos. It's, It's outstanding. Thank you. I'm I'm glad you like it.
0: There's a beautiful duet with with the flute, and then the horn comes in. It's it's amazing stuff.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just amazing stuff. Uh, you you were talking about uh, concert uh, composers and I mean uh, conductors and stuff. We did a film with James Horner called The Rocketeer,
3: oh,
0: which yes. had
1: lots I mean, and lots of
0: very busy music. One of my true favorites. I mean. Oh, is James. it? Well, great. Yeah.
1: Well, you know uh, you know who was on one of the, who who attended one of the sessions. Oh. Seiji Ozawa. Really? conductor of the Boston Symphony. Wow. And he showed up. Uh, we'd, already, we'd already recorded it. And I, I just happened to be there. So you're hearing this firsthand. Ozawa was, was with his assistant. And they played back. Uh, I think it was the Flying Circus cue or, you know, oh the my. Rocketeer for the first time. Mm. And we, they finished playing the cue. And Ozawa didn't say a word. But you know what he did? He walked out of the sound booth and he walked through the orchestra. Nobody was there. We were on lunch break, but he looked and he just slowly walked and just looked and to see, it was almost like I felt like he felt like it was, he was in a, uh, a sacred place.
3: Mm, a and temple. I
1: thought, this, yeah. this is so cool. One of the <laughs> most famous conductors in the world is, is paying uh, homage and, uh, and respect to, to what Mr. Horner did that day. Wow. Yeah,
0: and and I think uh, Ozawa was is good good friend with John Williams back to his, their collaboration in Boston. Right.
1: Yes, they are. Yeah.
0: And and, uh, and also I think that he also invited uh, Gustavo Dudamel on stage. I think on Tintin. Yeah,
1: that's right. Uh, Gustavo did. I was I, I did Tintin, and I remember Gustavo came and conducted one of the cues.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <So> he basically <laughs> has. This, this great respect from this new generation of, of conductors that really evaluates his music on the same level of, you know, the great classical repertoire. It's not, I, I think we are now in an age where probably we'll see more and more John's music being performed in classical. Well, I, I, I,
1: hope, I hope you're right. I, I have a close friend. His name is Richard Kaufman and Richard goes around the world conducting major orchestras, introducing the great music of of these film composers like uh T. or victor young um uh, franz waxman alfred newman john williams and and uh, richard told him, he says uh when i go to the chicago symphony the players are so excited to see me there they just love they love playing this music and and uh and the same with the, the New York Philharmonic. I have many colleagues and friends in the New York Philharmonic, and, and they, they feel the same way. There is a growing awareness of the level of uh, musicianship and genius that permeated the Hollywood film scores from the 1930s through the, through the 2000s from, from these people. And, I'm, you know, and apparently they sell out their concerts too. People just want to come back. They can't get enough of it. But you just hear if you listen really critically to these great composers, of which John Williams is part of this great generation, um, you realize just uh, how great these guys were, how wonderful it was. Mm-hmm. And I know we're here to talk about John, so I won't talk about Franz Waxman right now. But we'll talk more about about John right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love John. I mean, he was—I uh, owe him so much. Wonderful man.
0: I just wanted to to ask you about because uh tim was talking to me about your you did a solo album called now playing so tell me about your also your career as a recording artist i mean did you make that album to you know to have something that could be you know seen as a as a legacy of your own in some some way or just for fun
1: i was doing a master class at wichita state university and the um Head of the music department, I think his name was Greg Smith, if I'm not mistaken, was a horn player and a very good horn player. And uh, in the middle of these master classes, he came up to me and he said, You know, before it's too late, you better do a CD. <laughs> I was, I was, I, I think it was in my early 40s at the time. And I thought, And he said, And if you come back here, we'll. Supply the sound engineer and uh, all the facilities where you can record it. So I said, "Okay, uh, let's right. try something right now." So I went over to the uh, sound engineer into their studio and recorded four etudes by a composer named Vern Reynolds, which is very, very uh, athletic type of etudes, and and I, I recorded those four that afternoon. And I heard the playbacks, and and this guy's name is Phil Weens. I was the sound engineer and he sounded to me he sounded as good as the as the great engineers in Hollywood and so I said okay I'm coming back and and we'll do the CD and that's how that came about.
2: The, The Brahms on that CD is a great recording.
1: Amy Joe Ryan played horn on that. She's a fantastic player and a wonderful friend of mine. She plays third horn in the Los Angeles Philharmonic now, and she was uh, she was actually responsible for that whole uh, masterclass because I met her when she was principal horn with the Louisiana Philharmonic when Bill Conti uh, brought me down to New Orleans and we opened uh, up a film, the uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, the Disney film, and we had a big spectacular down there and. And I got to know her, and she said, "Well, why don't you come up to Wichita State and do a master class?" So I went up there, and then the head of their department said, "Well, why don't you do a CD?" I said, "Well, okay." So that's how that <laughs> came about. It.
0: Is that on the same album that you also did uh, the Strauss Concerto, or is it that no Stra- the Strauss no,
1: Second Horn Concerto, uh, which is out there? That was done completely differently. Um, we did it at Tadeo Studios. It was recorded by. Um, sean murphy fantastic recording engineer and what we did we just came in on a day that we were not filming so we like like it might have been a tuesday we filmed all day monday and we came back in on tuesday and and from start to finish cold turkey uh we recorded the strauss second horn concerto (laughs) in three hours wow (laughs) and then the next day (laughs) <laughs> and then the next day, we we're back at Taddeo Studio again, uh, completing the uh, working on the film. So that was just sort of a, uh, a secondary thought. You know, well, let's, you know, we got a day off, we got the studio. Sean said, come on in, let's do it. And so, uh, you know, so some beautiful, beautiful work. Michael Donovan on bassoon, Malcolm played trumpet, uh, uh, Tom Boyd on oboe. It's, I'm, I'm very, very proud of the uh, ability to highlight my film musicians in a classical venue like that.
2: I think it's it's very important. You mentioned Sean Murphy there, isn't it? Because, let's be honest. You know, he like one of the things Dad used to say to me. You know, as a kid growing up, sadly, obviously, recording uh, progressing uh, has advanced. When it comes to the French horn, but you know, he would always hate whenever the the sound of the recording engineer would stick a kind of mic in the bell, and of course, it, it creates this horrible kind of dry sound. You know, right? All yeah, of your that's- fantastic. So. Yeah, this is, this is
1: something we had to deal with. Uh, when I was in uh, in that era, uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, uh, songs being done, records, you know. Uh, uh, and what we would do is we would show up in a small studio, too small to have a big orchestra. So they would just layer us. They, you know, they do the woodwinds, they do the brass, they do the strings, and they would put it all together. Well, because of that small studio, some, the you know, sometimes the sound engineers would – would stick the microphone in places where we were not too happy with that. And, <laughs> it, actually, and it, actually, that, it actually found its way in, uh, in films. I, we did a big movie once with a huge orchestra, but the sound engineer was from this record date. That's what they were called, record dates. Uh, it was from this record date mentality, and he took the entire orchestra at Sony or MGM Studio and put baffles between each of us, all the sections were baffled, so that so that he could control everything individualistically, and we're like going, oh come on, this is this is no fun. We're you know, and then Sean came along, and said, okay, baffles are gone. We're going to put the microphones, three of them over the conductor's head, two of them in the back of the room, and you guys are going to play just like you're in a concert hall. Dennis Sand, another great uh, recorder, Bruce Bachnick, uh, you know, a lot of these guys. They had they and so they brought back this. Uh, idea that you play like you're in an orchestra. And we were, we were so grateful. The film I'm thinking of was called Empire of the Sun with John Williams, and Vincent Rose Rosa played first, I played in the section, and, uh, and Sean Murphy recorded the orchestra in a uh, classical fashion, and it changed everything.
0: Yeah, and there's also chorus, uh, a big choir. Yeah, also a
1: chorus, yeah. yeah. Yes. It's beautiful. Yeah. We had a great chorus in a film called Artificial Intelligence. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, Paul Thalamanovich, I think his name was, and the LA Master Chorale. And uh, we were at the place called Royce Hall at UCLA, and the orchestra sat in the stage, and the chorus was up in the balcony. And John had, had everyone uh, play at the same time, play and sing at the same time. And that's another thing about John. He did not like to use uh, the, the click track. Too often, John was of the school where he liked to uh, actually conduct it and have us, you know, really pay attention and put it together.
0: Yes, he likes to mm. conduct in, uh, you know, free free time, as you say, in in technical right. terms. And also, James Horner was another one that he was known for doing these very long cues. <laughs> doing you know. well
1: when we when we did the Rocketeer with James Horner, we would play six, seven minute long cues with no intercuts. Wow. <laughs> so it was, like, it was like direct disc. And we really concentrated a lot in, 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 in the Rocketeer because we knew that uh, uh, they, they didn't want to go back six minutes earlier and redo the whole thing. Yeah. You know. yeah. Well, well, later on, James figured out that he needed to do some intercutting, so it got a little easier as, as, as years went on. But yeah, uh, I, I did a film called, uh, a mini series called The North and the South about the American Civil War with Bill Conti. Oh, wow. And, and Iconic uh, and, horn well, solos. Well, yeah, and that was uh, Vince and Rich Parisi, but I just happened to be you know, called to, the, to be the, the substitute first horn player for those guys in this particular day because they were on other projects. And I'm sitting there, and there's this big horn solo, with a fifty-three measure rest in front of it, <laughs> and I said to myself, "Oh boy, this is now. This is. I've had my trial with John Williams. This is going to be my trial with Bill Conti. I better play that." And fortunately, and it, and it started on a very high note. But fortunately, I played it. I didn't miss it. And uh, you know, and then Bill and I went on to do a lot of projects together, also.
0: Speaking of that, I mean, uh, the other thing that is probably many people don't know is the fact that how much important is to be at at the right place uh, at the right time for you studio musician, because sometimes you, you can come in a day where you're substituting maybe uh, the the principal on a day maybe because he's on vacation or maybe he because he cannot come because of other dates and maybe that day you'll have the soul of your career.
1: It does happen. Uh, That's how James Horner and I got started actually. Um, There was a film called Heaven Help Us or something like that about a Catholic school and uh, the first day Vince was there, I'm playing second or third horn, the second day Another horn player came in and played first. And on the third day, they were both busy, and so there I was, and, and James wrote me some horn solos and, and I, you know, I didn't think much of it. You know I thought, okay, I'll, I'll play them. you know, I'm just happy to be here. To hold, I hope I can hold up the standard that DeRosa and and Parisi and Jack Cave and all these other great horn players did. And uh, so it went well, and and James uh, just—I finished playing. He goes, "That was great!" And I'm walking out. He goes, "Bye!" I (laughs) thought, "Oh my gosh, what's what's this all about?" (laughs) But that's (laughs) that's how that that's how that started, and I started playing solos for him.
0: Uh, music will live in the future and uh, how much uh, he contributed to the, to the horn repertoire overall, according to you.
1: Well, well, like I said, John, uh, we owe so much to John. Uh, John and uh, Vince DeRosa. Uh, Bill Hinshaw was another great horn player who played principal horn on the movie called The Cowboys. Uh, a great, great horn player. He was principal horn of Warner Brothers Studio. But John, you know uh, John Williams and James Horner, these guys saved our industry, I think, because uh, they they kept this tradition of great movie making going in an era where people were kind of trying to push it aside, I think, and 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 finally now now they're doing all the the striping and stuff, and it's just you don't have a chance to really uh, even redeem yourself. In fact, Jim Walker once said. Uh, I hope he will forgive me for I hope I'm saying this right he said uh, you know when i decided to leave the studios it was because there were four or five people in the sound booth all judging me and i knew that everyone was going to have a different opinion and he said i don't need this anymore and so that's why why he left you know and so we're we're not we're not dealing with the one on one like we used to uh, you know hopefully it'll come back though maybe the uh, new generation of composer will, will look at this and, and, and look back and say, hey, you know, I've got I to gotta think of, you know, work with the players more. In fact, I was giving a uh, demonstration at an ASCAP uh, a, a workshop, and at the end, all these composers came up to me, young guys, and they said, do you have any words for us, Mr. Thatcher? And I said, the best thing you can do is tell your players what you don't like that they just did because when you do that, you're telling that player that you have confidence that they can fix it, that they can change the style or whatever and, and get the job done right. And those composers looked at me like I had carrots coming out of my ears. And I thought to myself, oh, this is sad. That, you know, these guys don't understand the art of collaborating with players. And I just told them, you, you, if you tell a player what, what you're not happy with, that, that means you're telling them that you have confidence that they can, they can use their musicianship to change it or to, to make it so they will be happy with it. And, and a lot of times, that's what the great composers do, John. You know, John might say something, Jim, you know, this, we need to tune this or we need to do this or whatever. And you and, and, and always give me a shot at, uh, at making things right. Uh, and that's uh, that. That's very. I think that's being lost right now. There's kind of this mentality of, well, okay, that wasn't right. Uh, who else are we going to get next week? You know, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll mature about this. And I think it may be happening. I, I'm hoping that people will look at the past, listen to the great writing, the great playing, and uh, and and move forward with today's technology.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, and. Uh and Tim, what do you think will be John's legacy specifically uh, when we're talking about the the horn as an instrument and in the repertoire as you know as bringing so much to the forefront in the in the you know in the collective memory I think because so many of his yeah. horn solos are tied to in our you know not just fans or admirers of his music but also overall the the overall audience
2: No, well, this is it and and I think as with you know we Whenever we think of John's musicality, and he, we we know he always knows what to say, and often, you know, the, the French horn is is su- such that seminal voice. You know, the seminal voice, whether it be, you know, in some of his earlier scores. Uh, you know, we we all know even some of the, you know, Fitzwillie or How to Steal a Million. There's always there's always something special for the French horn. I mean, you you can tell he loves the instrument. He he knows. Uh, what to write for it, and and obviously with you know the likes of Jim and and the the many players who've um, managed to elevate his music to such such a great extent uh, have obviously so much to, to to thank John Williams for. But it's it's not just I, I don't think it's not just what he writes; it's how he writes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. You know, yeah we, we know it's exactly it's, it's how he writes, and, and knowing exactly where like the spotting a film so so beautifully you know yeah it's it's called genius <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, it, it
1: really is, is. <laughs> you know it's 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 that untouchable intangible uh, occurrence that just makes everything right
0: that what he does, he still does for for all you musicians is so important and how much he has inspired generations now, at least two generations now of people who fell in love uh, with symphonic music, orchestral music and because, you know, they started to listen to uh, Star Wars or Superman or Indiana Jones or, or, you know, all the great music that he, he, he did.
2: Yeah, Yeah. You must have a lot of pupils, Jim, that have often said, you know, they've been inspired to play the French horn because they've heard you, I'm sure you get that a lot. I do, yeah. And
1: they say, oh, Jim, you're a legend. And I say, oh, does that mean I'm old? (laughs) 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 No, but I have great students uh, uh, all over the world and in the studios and orchestras and that, that part of my life is very rewarding also because not only are they great, they're great students, they're great people and they're uh, lifetime friends. Mm-hmm.
0: I spoke with Dylan Hart a few weeks ago as well. Well, he's, he's one of my students. Yes, he told yeah. me and, and he's a fantastic musician. I mean, he, I think he's now f- first horn with John. I mean, in the last few scores he did.
1: Yeah, he's done, he's done the last few projects with John. Yes, and he's hopefully carrying that tradition of of what uh we feel the horn should be about you know the sound and the style and and uh you know uh, what i tried to carry on in my time hopefully uh there will be a vehicle for people like dylan and others i'm thinking of Jay greg miller who's out in the uh, first horn of the u.s army field band and a guy named T reeves and, and others uh, uh a lot of lady horn players i've taught uh Katie Ferraro, uh Amy Sanchez. Uh well I I I better stop because if I forget a name I, I might make somebody angry. But uh yeah, I, I just uh you know it's it's very rewarding and hopefully uh hopefully uh, things will come around where the, there will be more of a collaborative spirit again between the uh, modern composers and the players.
0: I'd like to end on this very uh optimistic and hopeful note, uh, our conversation because uh I think it bodes well for, for, for the future and it's so important to, to have this context. And So I'm, I'm very grateful that you accepted to do this conversation with me.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, John actually wrote me a note thanking me for all the notes and things that I played for him. And he said, uh, he said, Jim, I will forever be in your debt. So it, it, with John, it was definitely a two way street.
0: That's, that's lovely.
2: of the French horn to the, the art of film scoring, well, and, and of course, to, just to music in general. And I think with film scores, it's so special because the French horn always gets to the heart of the matter. It's almost like the narrative. you know what I mean? Well, that's the way I feel. I'm, great. I'm glad you feel that way too.
0: Really, guys, thank you very much for, for this beautiful, lovely conversation I
2: had. You're very welcome. Well, thank you. And thank you, Jim. It's been great to see you both. Great to see you again, Tim.
0: Thanks to Jim Thatcher for his diamond generosity. Special thanks to Tim Burden for his help and support. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for special articles and more podcast episodes. From Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening. Until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast.